Catherine Schweit, who created the FBI's active shooter report, joins the show to talk about potential solutions, plus a look at the flood of post-brewing gun cases. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and check out our membership options today if you want exclusive access to sober, serious firearms reporting and analysis that you cannot get anywhere else. We also have a free weekly newsletter, which you can subscribe to to get an understanding of the kind of work we do and see if uh, you know later on you might want to upgrade to a membership because that membership comes with a number of perks, including getting this podcast day early and the opportunity to appear, appear on the show or ask questions in our Q&A uh, episodes. So head on over and check that out today. This episode, we're going to be talking with an expert on active shooting situations, former uh, special agent at the FBI who helped create their active shooter program, uh, Catherine Schweit, who uh, is joining us now. Catherine, can you just give uh, people a little bit more background about yourself who might not know you? Oh, sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking. I'm a, I'm a Michigander by nature and spent time in Chicago as a prosecutor uh, for the state courts and joined the FBI. I spent 20 years there um, working national security matters. And then after the Sandy Hook shooting, um, the, you know, as has happened, I got told, hey, you're going to do this. And so I, uh, I started the FBI's active shooter program and ran it for five years uh, when I hit uh, mandatory. I left the FBI and now I'm in private uh, private business uh consulting and uh, wrote wrote a book about it saying, hey, public, here's what you can do um, and do a podcast, uh, you know, by the same name, Stop the Killing. And that's really kind of my mission in between actually paying my bills. Right. And so you've you've uh, had a lot of time where you've studied these incidents. Uh, and and I think, you know, it's great to have somebody with your level of knowledge and expertise on the show to talk about uh, this situation because everybody wants a solution, right? Everybody wants to have a better understanding of why these happen, what we can do to prevent them, or at least to uh, make them less common going forward and, and maybe get an understanding for, for why we've seen uh, an increase in, in these, uh, these sorts of events. Uh, and, and also, you know, there's a lot to talk about, of course, in this topic, you know, the difference between uh, what a mass shooting is and what an active shooter situation is, because they're not necessarily the same thing. Um, and so the FBI just put out their most recent uh, active shooter report last uh, in, in May here, I believe it was. We, we did a story about it on the reload. Uh, and they they said there have been almost a doubling of active shooter incidents since 2017. Um, now, oh, of yeah. course, uh, well, first off, can you just explain what what an active shooter incident is? And, and sort of the, the square rec rectangle uh, situation there between active shootings sure. and, and mass shootings. Mass shootings, mass killings. Um, you know, and that's really why I wanted to come on your podcast, because you you deal in kind of facts and figures uh, somewhat. And that's really great because everything has to have a why behind it. What's the real numbers behind it? Because this is such an emotional problem that everybody has. Everybody's they're so emotive about their it's so, such a visceral and, and understandably we need to do this. so we need right. to do that of course yeah. right because you're talking about you know kids killed in uvalde and and par parishioners killed in in the south in south carolina and people who are just grocery shopping up in buffalo and suddenly this is going on so it invokes that visceral feeling in all of us but 
in order to solve the problem, we really have to have a better understanding of the real facts and figures. So, so first to answer your question, mass killing, mass shooting, active shooter, all those different things. I think, I think we start with something simple like serial killer. Oh, what's a serial killer? Serial killer is somebody who, you know, goes, who does the same thing, but they kill this guy and then they kill another person and then they kill that lady. And, you know, we try to find a serial killer because they're going to repeatedly kill people for whatever pattern. Um, and that may, and serial killers generally kill a person or two people, right? So you don't see them in these numbers when we talk about mass killings or mass shootings. So under I federal had a, law. I actually had a, a serial killer, uh, in my neighborhood not long oh, ago which the yeah. police i always thought the uh it, it was it's kind of funny because usually the serial killers get their names from like the media but the police called this guy the shopping cart killer because he would dump bodies in shopping carts so but they, yeah. they caught him thankfully but but we yeah try not so. to use those we try we we hate right. to not we we now know that it's probably not good to put those little name probably monikers not, yeah. out there because <laughs> Because then people say, look, that's me. I want to be that guy. Mm -hmm. But there's, a, there's an FBI definition for serial killer and there's an FBI definition for active shooter. There's not necessarily enough. And, and for mass killing, right? There actually, a mass there killing is a, is a federal statute, but there's mm -hmm. no definition. You're right. There's no definition for mass shooting. Mass shooting. Now, yeah. mass killing is defined as three or more people dead, which could even be the shooter. And that's a and federal didn't it law used to be that was four, passed. And they, they changed it from four to three, didn't they? No, I'll, let me explain no. that. I love that you asked me that because people say all the time, oh, four or more, four or more. Mm -hmm. So if you take those terms that we're talking about, there is a federal definition for mass killing, three or more. That's the only time the federal government has identified that three or more as a mass killing. And it was really a statute passed, uh, signed by President Obama, passed uh, after the Sandy Hook shooting on the Investigative Assistance Act. Think of the name of it, the Investigative Assistance Act of 2000, uh, 2012 and that, or 2012. And that was to give the FBI and DHS authority to help in these kinds of killings, these mass, mass situations. So any situation where there's three or more killed, the FBI and DHS can come in at the request of locals and they're kind of, it's a scope of authority. They're protected because they're doing their job because hmm. a federal agent, as a federal agent, I can only do the jobs that I legally have authority. That's why we're special agents, because special in as a lawyer, I can tell you, it means limited. If you're special, it means that that's a limited authority where local law enforcement has uh, authority to keep the peace. Uh, state and local law enforcement, uh, tribal law, law enforcement is keeping the peace. The FBI's authority, the federal government's authority for their agents is special, meaning that it's limited. So the Investigative Assistance Act gave us that three or more and what happened is, and, and serial killer is, uh, the FBI actually um, did a research project years and years ago in the 90s that said, we'll look at two or more, but there's no federal definition for it. But the FBI looked, did a research project on two or more people killed and said, any case where we think this person, a person committed two or more killings, and we think they were serial killer from a behavioral aspect. So then fast forward to active shooters and all these mass shootings and the media begins to, and, and I'm not knocking the media at all. I'm just saying they they have to articulate what's going on. They are saying, oh, there's this mass shooting or this mass casualty event. We have a hurricane. It's a mass casualty event. We have a shooting. It's a mass shooting event. So mass shooting becomes quite the common term that's used. However, and then what happens is um, some 
agencies, some think tanks, uh, I can name a handful of them, start with saying that the FBI says a mass shooting is four or more. And because they, that comes from the original research that the behavioral people did on, on serial killers, where they said that we're, they said we're not talking about any mass shooting, any mass shooting situation. Uh, there are other researchers who are doing research on mass shooting. Some of them use four or more. They literally said it that casually. And then people picked up out of that, that the FBI thinks it's four or more, but the FBI has never ever done any research on mass shootings and identified right. it as four or more. But if you look that up online, everybody would say it. Yeah. So and really, it's, it gets very confusing, all these definitions, I think, for people, because because then you for, for a long time it, uh, in media, you, you often had mass shooting, meaning uh, four or more killed in the same incident. And and there'd be caveats, right. too, for, you know, if you look at the Mother Jones tracker, the Associated right. Press's tracker, and we had uh, Professor James Allen Fox on uh, previously oh, yeah. on, the, on, the, yeah. on the podcast, who was he was a great guest and gave a lot of in- insight too. That's another good episode for people who want to learn more about this subject. But uh, you know, they they tend to exclude things like gang violence um, right. or robberies, uh, you know, because they're those are different situations in a lot of people's mind than Uvalde or or uh, the boss uh, the Buffalo uh, grocery store mass shooting. Sure. So. Uh, you know, I think it gets really confusing for people. And then and then those definitions aren't FBI definitions. Of course, FBI focuses on yeah. active shooter, which is a different right. situation altogether. Well, not a different situation, but it's a different way of looking at these events. Right? You know, right. What an active shooter, federal definition for active shooter, an individual actively engaged in killing or attempting to kill people in a crowded space. Mm-hmm. So an active shooter is a subset of of what we would think of as mass shootings. Right. So if that, if that helps. Um, yeah. Or it's, so, it's kind of broader, really, because you don't actually have to have shot anyone in, in theory. Uh, to well, be I think that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you're, it, it isn't actually broader because a mass shooting is a shooting. It's not a mass killing. Mm-hmm. Right. So right. I think that's True. the confusion. Right. An active shooter can be no one is killed mm-hmm. at all. It is the idea that there's this shooting in public that a lot of people could potentially get killed. But a mass killing, uh, the Department of Justice in the last two years has said, we need a real definition for for mass shooting. And I actually put one in my book based on the Department of Justice uh, conversation. And it says, you know, it's very similar to an active shooting, active shooter, but it doesn't have the active part, right? So a mass shooting is when when more than one person is killed um, and well, mass shooting is when the same thing like active shooter, where, where you have somebody who's coming into an area and kills. So, um, and kills a number of people. And let me distinguish off what these would be. For instance, um, a family murder suicide in a home, right? And a husband uh, is angry. He kills his wife and three kids. Yeah. Then he kills himself. You have an entire family. They're killed in a home. It's not an active shooter but it's going to come up as a mass shooting. Yeah. And that's actually the most common. And uh, when I've, at least when I've right. examined the numbers personally, like the, that usually accounts for more than half of those four or more people killed at the same time events, right. they don't get the same sort of coverage that, you know, public random right. shooting does, but, but they actually happen to be, if you, if you're looking at numbers of four or more killed or three or more killed, um, if you look at, uh, you know, the gun violence archives tracker, right. they, they give a much more extensive 
um, you know, breakdown of these things. And, and yeah, that's what you'll find is most of them are the situations you just discussed, which are still obviously horrific and tragic. They're, they're, right. pro- they're different, obviously, than uh, what happened at Uvalde, though. Uh, and so that, I think Sand- to me, that's what a lot of the problem you get to in media when you're trying to discuss these topics, because the mass shooting counters most media outlets use now are four or more people injured in a shooting, which is extremely broad and encompasses a ton of different types of shootings. Right. And most of them are likely, you know, criminally involved shootings, robberies, uh, you know, gang altercations, or murder drug suicides. Sales. Sure. Right. And so and these so, are different so, right. things. It's a com- completely different problem to try to solve, mm-hmm. which is why um, when I was at the FBI, um, the FBI's initial research on active shooters, I was co-authored on, I co-authored why I asked my team of analysts and, and my other agents and uh, I had local police officers working with me, why we wanted to put the, pull this subset, because we know what causes gangs and we know gang shootings and we know what causes drug shootings and we know what causes uh, murder suicides and familial issues, domestic issues. What we didn't know is this, what is this subset of these small what it was at the time, small shootings. When I started the first seven years of of our research from 2000 to 2006, we had um, an average of six shootings a year. Uh, last year, using the exact same criteria as you as your listeners would know, the FBI uh, said there were 61 shootings yeah. using the exact same criteria, 61. So we went from six when I first started to 61 a year. Hmm. which is which is stupid and ridiculous yeah it's remarkable and it really says that we're not we're not figuring out the problem yeah i mean that certainly seems to be the case i mean uh and and i will say that i think the active shooter definition from the fbi your the definition that you guys came up with is is a pretty good one uh, in terms of trying to understand the phenomenon uh, of uh and whether it's growing or shrinking or, or what have you because one of the fair critiques of using the three or more killed standard for mass shooting is it relies, you know, it's really a little bit random because if you have the same intention and carry out the same act, but you only kill two people, you don't get caught up in that. Right. I mean, there's the fair criticism on the high end of the hundreds and hundreds of a year. While that might be a, uh, an interesting stat to look at over a long time period, most people haven't been tracking that until the, you know, mid two thousands, but right. You know, the, the, you're catching a lot of stuff that's not similar to, you know, these big mass mass shootings that people understand as as mass shootings. Right. Um, but then Absolutely. on the other end, on the other end, it's fair to, I think, to criticize just counting three or more killed because then, then you're missing out on these. Scenarios. It's I guess it's just it's complicated, right? Because you the active shooting standard that you guys have come up with at least gets closer to all of the people who are trying to carry out these kinds of attacks, whether or not they actually right. succeed at them. You know what? And all the people who are at risk, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the problem, right? We were looking for when is the public at risk and where are they at risk? And there, it doesn't, just because somebody comes in and they're an idiot with their gun because they just bought it and they don't know how to use it very well and they spray all over and 25 people are injured and only two are dead doesn't mean that that wasn't a horrible, horrific situation. Right. And so we were very concerned about what is the threat to the public and and how do we capture everything on the threat to the public? Because when we started out 
Absolutely. I had, uh, you know, I had people calling me and saying, hey, I think you should use a threshold because that's what researchers use. Researchers who don't have all the abilities that you guys have to research and, and data that you can pull from. They said, oh, you know, you should use three or more or four or more. And I said, we're not using any or more. We're, we're using zero. You can have somebody who comes in who's a horrible shot. But if they come in and they they terrorize the, the world, you know, we don't have a lot of active shooter situations where no one is killed. We uh, usually somebody is killed. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the better better number to go with. And now we have 20 some years of data that tells us a lot about you know, two thirds of these are handguns mm-hmm. that are, you know, two thirds of them are handguns. We have like 15 incidents involving women out of 300 plus, right? So the data has really helped us to see who is going out in public and doing this and who's willing to do it. Why are they willing to do it? What their breakdown is, because then our behavioral team at down at Quantico is looking at who these particular shooters are. Plus, right. I will say this about the FBI's data. The FBI's data is based on police reports. And all the researchers, just because of what's available to them, can only look at open source. So it's going right. to be much more polluted data. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I just think it uh, if you're trying to understand this phenomenon of mass shootings, uh, of, of randomized public attacks, right? Not, not you know, your, your uh, gang shootings or drug-related shootings or, or, or even, um, you know, uh, the, the family murders that we discussed earlier. Uh, then it, it does make sense to approach it the way that you have. Um, you know, people need media. Obviously, I'm coming at it from a media perspective, so I think media needs to do a good job of explaining these things, right? And and you know that an active shooter incident doesn't always mean Uvalde or Buffalo, right? But right. if you want to get a better understanding of why these are happening, are they happening more often? Are, you know, what is the makeup of somebody who is trying to carry out an attack like this? Right. You know, what are some of the similarities between them? Uh, what are some warning signs? That that kind of thing. Uh, then I, I do think taking that broad approach of uh, it's broad in the sense that it doesn't rely on, you know, body counts, but it's right. narrow in the sense that it, it's focused on people trying to carry out randomized public attacks in crowded you know, yeah, and I think it's really important, too, when people talk about, oh, uh, we want this gun legislation or we want that gun legislation. And again, it goes back to this emotional aspect of it. But, um, you know, obviously, I focus on these these most horrific public mass shootings. That's what I was tagged to do initially. But, you know, you know, and your listeners know, you know two thirds of the firearms deaths in the United States last year were were suicides. <laughs> so you know, what, you know, what is the threat to firearms deaths? It includes a lot of other things. It includes, hey, let's not have all these unsecured guns in homes. Hey, let's look at ways that we can make sure that we, you know, uh, step in when somebody is under duress. We know, right, uh, mental health issues. Uh, people say, oh, mental health, mental health. If you're getting mental health care. You're not our threat, probably, right? It's not, that's not mental health. But if you're under mental stress, mm-hmm. um, and if you have financial problems, if you have a breakup or a relationship problem, if you lose a job, those are the stressors that are going to send our shooters over the edge. And is that is that what you found in, in your research on this? Mm-hmm. The, those are the FBI. sorts of things. What are those? Absolutely. Yeah. What are these? Uh, the, those similar... are the those are the biggest categories: mental mm-hmm. stress, uh, financial uh, stress. Um, financial, you know, tr- bankruptcies, financial uh, inability to pay your, your uh, rent, right? Mm. 
breakups uh, with an emotional problems, breakups with your, uh, uh, your wife or your partner and, uh, and a loss of a job. Mm. Uh, and, yeah. you know, big job challenges. And those may seem like, well, of course, those are everybody's big stressors. Think about it. You put two or three of those, the FBI found in their research on stressors that everybody had three or four stressors among, there were others certainly, but three or four, every single shooter in our active shooter study had three or four of those stressors. That means that there are a lot of people who are stressed around us, put a pandemic on top of that, right? Put a recession on top of that, put, put a job loss, put not getting, uh, being able to pay your mortgage uh, on top of that and uh, gas prices going up. All of those things are just little pieces of the Jenga puzzle that take somebody to that edge. And if they have access to a weapon, uh, they may see that as a solution. And that's that trajectory towards violence that we're looking for. You have to look for people who they may be under all these stressors, but then they're planning and preparing. They're, they're angry and they're ready to take it out uh, on the people who have caused this, this, uh, these problems that they have. They're ready to take charge and not let be the ones, not be the one that's the victim anymore. Hmm. Right. Yeah. I think that was something that, uh, you know, James Allen Fox, a professor James Allen Fox had, had also touched on this idea of like victimhood being a, a main driver. Like they feel that they're the victim of these situations and, uh, <clears throat> and that they're uniquely victimized compared to the rest of the population. And that plays a role in, in, uh, motivation for some of these attacks. You think that's, yeah, you fair? know, it, that's true. I think that's fair. And I think, I think one of the things for a listener to recognize is that, um, I call, you know, I call them brittle people, um, because it's not just that they are victimized. It's that they, perceive it. Yeah. So they have a real or perceived grievance. Right. Right. Yes. So you don't it might even not know be real, that, but they, this is how yeah, they exactly. think. It, yeah. It might be that that, that woman who got the promotion I should have gotten parks in my parking spot every day. And the woman is not even aware of the fact that this guy thought he should have gotten the promotion or that she's taken his parking spot. And that can apply to so many other things. The angry person who is angry that they think you cut in line. They think you pulled into the gas pump station station and took their, their pump when they were going to pull in there. Because you don't know what else is in their background. You don't know what else they're, what stressors they're dealing with that day. Um, so that's something to consider. It's like, I see a lot of, when we did ran the numbers initially, uh, high school shootings, school shootings, uh, uh, middle school and high schoolers, you know, shoot up generally their own schools. And uh, those shootings more often than not, not by any huge percentage, but more often than not occur on a Monday. And that's probably because those kids are stressed all weekend and they're going back to school and they got to go back to to fail geometry again or to deal with that bully or to, you know, be alone in the cafeteria or whatever. And uh, so, for so some, there's a lot of different stressors for some really tiny percentage of of people who face these sorts of issues, it can cause them to, I guess, boil over and, and go on one of these attacks. Yeah. And I think that, you know, people say, oh, he snapped. None of these guys snap. I mean, that's a term that from a behavioral standpoint, we never we say absolutely none of them snap. But something can trigger uh, their limit on the stress. You know, you think about somebody who's really brittle and they have, you know, like they have a backpack on their back and every every perceived, you know, or real grievance they have, they put in the backpack and it's a big rock. And eventually the backpack just gets too heavy. Hmm. And and that's then the, then that person is 
you know, looking, looking for some way to express how angry he is. Hmm. And, and that's what, that's what happens. And he starts to plan and prepare and then he executes. Interesting. You know, I've heard, there's obviously a lot of theories out there as to why these things happen. But um, one of, one of the ones that I've heard uh, a number of times deals with uh, the similarity between mass shootings and, or at least it, it tries to draw similarity between mass shootings and, and um, suicide by cop, where these are people who uh, mm-hmm. maybe would want to commit suicide, but uh, don't have it, I guess, don't have it in them to do that. And so instead they create a situation where they are more likely to be killed by going out mm-hmm. in this way and, and murdering people at random. Is that, does that fit with the, what you've ex- studied over the it years does. on this? Okay. It does. There's a huge percentage, I think 42% of the active shooters in the last, uh, 20 years, 18 years. I have to check the numbers to be sure, but uh, 42% of them commit suicide at the scene and um, or or away from the scene. And many of those um, w- would be categorized as suicide by cop. And, you know, there's a, there's a whole other layer of suicide by cop, which is somebody who's in trauma, somebody who decides they don't want to live anymore. Um, there are many faiths that say, uh, that is a, uh, you know, it's a sin to a mortal sin to commit suicide. So, um, if you're a faith filled person and, uh, you might not want to commit suicide now, how you can kill other people in the process. I don't know how that works in your faith. Sure. Um, and, and there are also people who say, um, and these aren't necessarily logical, you know, decisions that are no. made here. Right. I mean, you're, you're going down the lane of you're losing the logic mm-hmm. process. Absolutely. And, and you're getting, and they get shooters get in these kinds of situations, you know, these, this isn't violent. Uh, this isn't a, 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 a violence that is a, you know, reactive, uh, violence because you, you think somebody's going to kill you or, um, violence that occurs as part of a crime where you're doing a crime and then, you know, you're at a bank robbery, but then you shoot the guard, you know, because he confronts you or something and you're fearful for your safety. This is, this is a different kind of violence that, uh, and people don't, it's a voluntary thing and, and people have to mentally get to a spot where they can do that. And a lot of people can't do that. Just like a lot of people may even think I, I, I don't want to live anymore, but I don't have the guts to commit suicide, which I would hope anybody listening would know. We don't want anybody to commit suicide. There's so yes. many resources and suicide is a, is a momentary thing, but mm-hmm. some people do execute it. And, um, and it's incredibly sad because right. there are so many resources available to help you, even though you might not think so. Sure. And, and I guess, uh, this, this dovetails well into my next question, which is you've talked about, you know, professor James Allen Fox was, was maybe a little bit more pessimistic on the prospects of, of, uh, trying to prevent these shootings or, or arresting this increase that we've seen. Um, but, but I've read some of your, recent uh, writings, and you seem a little more optimistic as to the idea that we could have an impact on this, even even if we're trying to, um, even if we can improve certain areas just by 1%, that could have a cumulative effect that right. will will see, you know, uh, a significant impact. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about what, what actually can be done realistically uh, to yeah, prevent I, some of these shootings moving forward. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because I think that I think that everybody wants a solution, uh, but I think that one percent every place or that half a percent every place, 
So that's where I um, I'm maybe am more optimistic than other people. I feel like the, we are out there fighting to look for the right solutions, right? And um, so, for example, I'm old enough to remember when drinking was legal at 18 and then it was illegal at 18 and then it was legal at 18 and then it was illegal at 18 or whatever. And that was us trying to figure out, you know, you know, how stupid is somebody when they're 18 and drinking, you know, and, and same with the, the purchase of cigarettes and things like that. And I think that's kind of what we're doing just with the firearms themselves. Now there's a thousand other pieces of it, but just with the firearms, for example, there are a lot of little tinkering. There's a lot of little tinkering that's being done in the firearms world. For instance, we have after now seven years, we have an ATF head. And there are people who I am um, friends with who are out in the, as you can imagine, a lot, lots of my friends out in the gun world who are saying if ATF did a better job of enforcing and, and charging people who are trying to get guns, if ATF could do a better job trafficking, if ATF could do a that that would keep the hands out of people who should the guns out of people who shouldn't have out of their hands. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And um, so that thing. So maybe that will make a difference. I feel like that's a something. Maybe that director at the head of the ATF will make that difference because they'll make those decisions and they'll they'll charge people who are uh, falsely filing those. Uh, yeah, straw purchases. Escaping me. Yeah, the straw yeah. purchases and all of that. All right. So maybe that's one thing. Maybe the fact that the federal government has now passed something that has to do with funding states to support the red flag laws, something that might be able to take some guns out of some people's hands at a critical time, uh, if the court so deems, now there's a federal money to go into the states uh, to support that so that they have the, you know, the, the administrative help and the court help. And so maybe that's a little piece that will help take it. And if, and, and I'm a believer in one person who is taken offline is enough. It's enough because it saves a life or two lives or 20 lives or 40 lives, right? So maybe, so the federal agency, the federal law that was passed, it's going to be these little pieces that we don't know if those little pieces will work. We don't know if they're enough. We don't know if some of them work and some of them don't. We, But let's try, we're moving forward. We're trying. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, you know, on the firearms part, that's it. But then the public has its own responsibility that it's just not stepping up to do in my mind about keeping keeping their weapons secured. Everybody's all, you know, I got to be able to get to my gun. Well, you know, what? your gun in your peanut butter cover or your cereal cover is just isn't doing it isn't doing any good when you have an eight year old in the house. Sure. So, you know, doing a better job of being responsible uh, to own your gun. Don't be the Oxford High School parent who buys your 15 year old a handgun while he's busy smoking you with his stories. You buy a 15-year-old a handgun, a straw purchase, you give it to him as a gift for Christmas, and then, you know, he's out a week later shooting up his school. Not yeah, there, there have been incidents like the Oxford and, and even um, the July 4th shooting where the parents were sort of uh, actively involved in obtaining firearms for the shooter. Uh, although, you know, obviously these are hard situations, I think, for, for anyone um, Everyone is individualized. <clears throat> yeah. Right? If, look at every case individually. But the Highland Park shooter up in Illinois on July 4th, mm -hmm. um, he had had a couple of incidents yep. three months before right. his father signed for that Floyd card. So it's true. maybe that was right. And, I guess and the you parent, don't know yeah, until in the parent situation, happens, right? they're probably thinking they're probably hoping that, well, 
that was just a one-off incident or whatever. And so you can understand why somebody, kids are great. yeah, why sure. somebody might end up doing that, but you can also see, and I mean, hindsight is easy in a lot of these cases, right? Right. It's harder at the time. Absolutely. And I, that's something that you've talked about with, uh, you just wrote recently about um, a mass shooting being prevented in, uh, was it San Antonio, Texas? San Antonio. Uh, because yeah. somebody had spoken up about the threats that they were uh, hearing from a coworker, right? And and uh, you know, you talk about in that in your piece on that uh, that you know the the parents had helped uh, or knew that that shooter or the potential shooter. This person did not actually carry out an attack, but made a lot of threats right. to that effect. Said he wanted to commit a mass shooting yeah. and so forth. Um, and you know, he the parents might not have. Uh, you talk about how the parents might have known he might have some issues and had firearms, but didn't know about the threats necessarily that the coworker right. knew about, and the coworker knew about the threats, right. but maybe didn't know about the firearms. Um, but uh, and so a lot of times people end up not doing anything in those situations. Right. And you're part of what your uh, plan for how to you know uh, solve the not solve but. In, you know, improve the situation right. is uh, that people need to speak up more often yeah. and, and quicker, right? Is that the basic idea? Yeah. You know, about five years ago, maybe six years ago, I wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times. And it's, and I said, um, until the public gets engaged in this, until the public takes responsibility for this, we're never going to solve this problem. And that was back when we had, you know, 25% of what we have now in terms of active shooters. So I think the public has not gotten engaged. They all say, my kid would never do that. My husband's a good guy. You know, my, I will just fire that guy at work. Yeah, that's not a solution. You're just passing your problem off to the community. Hmm. And so I think until the public gets engaged, so that's the other parts. We, maybe we can make some changes in the firearm laws that will make a difference. We don't know until we try some. Maybe we can do a better job at home on, on, on understanding the unsecured guns is part of the reason we have two thirds of our, uh, you know, firearms deaths in the United States are suicides. Um, and, you know, of those suicides, the, the largest bulk, the, the largest percentage are white rural male mm -hmm. uh, shooters, yeah. you know, old, older, age, older age. So, you know, maybe you have somebody you're living with who's under stress. Think about the fact that they have access to a handgun and they may solve that. Sure. So, and then, and then the public just has to, has to under has to have a better understanding. And I, I know maybe this is all boring and to me, it's not, you know, uh, the public has to think about when they see something, they have to say something, they have to be responsible for doing it. Yeah. Let me tell you one other thing. One, some, one thing that was fascinating recently, I was reading, um, well, I read too much and, uh, I was reading a, um, uh, this uh, research project that, um, the FBI had done. Uh, and it said that, um, when people knew about something, um, or actually this wasn't the FBI, it was another uh, source, but when people heard information and knew about it and and called it into this anonymous reporting system, that something like 80% of the time or 85% of the time, that person's information, that was the only person who called that information in. So if you don't call in, if you don't call the local police or your school resource officer or your parish priest or your boss or your HR department or an anonymous reporting system or you, local police, sheriff, county, FBI tip line. If you don't call, you may be the only one who has that information. Like that woman in San Antonio who called on 
after on a Friday, she was worried about the guy, you know, who she was working with, who made those kinds of threats. She had no idea. She called in on Monday and, and said, and, and told him about it. And they arrested him and found out there was so much, so much more planned. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, I like your perspective because I mean, on, on the, on the one hand, obviously when you're dealing with firearms uh, laws and, and uh, you know, that's a fundamental right that, you know, there's a lot of complication that goes into how to handle it. Sure, I have a firearm. Right. You know, I shoot. I shoot. I go to the range. I, I, my, I go to my sister's house and we shoot in the backyard because that's what you do in a big, a lot of property. Of course. And, um, and then on the other hand, like it's, it's easier to see these red flags in hindsight than perhaps it is at the time that they're happening, uh, especially if they're spread apart by a couple of years. Right. Um, But, uh, but I like that, uh, you know, you're advocating for people not to become complacent and that there are solutions to this issue um, and that they're multiple, they're multifaceted. Right. And, and that, if, yeah. If, Cause I think people say, Oh, this is, that's never going to happen in my community. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that thing that happened in Texas was terrible. And then, you know, Tuesday they're, you know, having tea and toast again. Yeah. And, and of course, like, uh, and if, you know, it is, it is difficult, of course. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to underplay how hard it is to prevent these sorts of things, um, or, or stop them. It's not, but it is important to note, it's not impossible. Uh, and that, that you, there are things that can be done that, that even individuals can that. take to do them because, yeah. And, and of course, even if you do report something to the police that doesn't always get followed up on, there's a lot of situations where the, the FBI or local law enforcement had knowledge of these individuals that carry out the attacks yeah. sometimes uh and sometimes it's not necessarily their fault that they weren't able to follow up sure. uh, because they the person hadn't committed they a have crime limited authority right lines. but i mean that's one thing that we talk about on my podcast uh not to do a blatant podcast plug here but we'll actually we give you time for that but, yes. but you know but the thing is that what we try to do is we dissect a shooting mm-hmm. and then we say what did we know beforehand and what or when could something have been reported? And my co-podcaster is, she's like a mom from London. Mm-hmm. So she's like a perfect foil for it because she'll say, you know, I wouldn't have called about that. But th- but we ha- the public has to be more alert and more aware and more responsible mm-hmm. to be part of the solution. They just have right. to be. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that's a fair point. And, um, you know, one, one more thing uh, here before I let you go. I'm I'm interested in your thoughts on why we've seen this increase. Why has it gone from six incidents to 64 incidents over the last 20 years? What what do you think is causing that? I mean, something must be uh, different. That's the people are more inclined to take these sorts of drastic uh, att- undertake these drastic attacks like this or try to. You know, I, I get asked that. It's like the sixty-four thousand dollar question. Why you know why does this keep happening? Why is it getting worse? And I think that it is, um, I, I think we've, we've had, you know, we've had such a dramatic increase over the last four years. And I think that really has uh, a lot to do with, we have, not that, you know, maybe listeners want to hear this, but we have an incredible uh, increased number of guns out there, right? 18, 19 million guns last year uh, purchased. So we have a huge number of guns out there. And so then you compare, you know, 400 million plus guns and, and put that, put those in the hands of a, 
anybody who wants one kind of, which I know that's not the standard, but so many people who can get them legally. Most of the guns that are used in mass shootings are, um, are legally purchased. And then you add on top of that a few years of pandemic, job loss, changes in the economy, you know, people who everything has been upset where they used to go to the office every day, nine to five, or they go down to be a mechanic at their, at, you know, at their local uh, shop. And um, now the shops are closed. So suddenly they don't get paid um, because they can't work at home. Uh, you know, they're a mechanic for crying out loud. And so there's massive financial stress, health issues. There've been instability as family members have been sick and died off and you're having to support other family members. I think all of those stressors have been like on, on overload. So when I talked earlier about what are the stressors, they're on overload and then put on top of that, you know, they're all on overload because of the pandemic and because of the economy and because of, you know, and, and, and I'm so mad at you. And then I think the third layer is really that we have done a kind of disservice to ourselves by talking uh, on, you know, so much on, on Twitter and Instagram and every other website about the shooters and kind of glorifying the shooters. And, and through the years we've done that by mistake. And when we continue to retweet and ask about why did he do this and why did he do that? Um, and putting his picture up there, the next guy who wants to be the glorified shooter thinks I can, I can gain infamy from it. That's why I never use a shooter's name. They all think they're going to be famous. None of them are famous. None of them are famous. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I, when I look at the, the why, I think it's really hard to answer. You know, I, I like there's our, all, all three of those are, are fairly popular um, explanations mm-hmm. that people give um, to one degree or another. Uh, I think they all have mm-hmm. some issues, right? Uh, you know, obviously we have, we've had a lot of guns in the United States for a long time. Uh, in fact, polling indicates that more people percentage wise used to own guns uh, you know, it, oh, back, yes. it, back. yeah. And more and spread out over more households. Yeah. Right. We have more guns now, but they were spread out over more households right. before. But now we're kind of now we're kind of bending. And, back and you've it. seen right. um, I mean, you you saw a period of uh, incredible, uh, uh, incredibly low violent crime and murder rates in the United States at the same time that we were also seeing an incredible increase in in gun sales. So it's uh, you know, maybe that's different for these particular shootings. I don't know. But uh, and then and then when you get to, um, you know, there's there's strengths and weaknesses to all those arguments. And I don't know that there's a per- I've never heard a perfect one. Yeah. You know, the the, the well, so- contagion effect or the the faint one right. fame oh, yeah. is, you know, there's evidence for that and evidence against it. Um, you know, yeah, I don't know that there's any evidence against it, but I'd be happy to, if you pointed it out. Sure. Well, I, I've but seen a couple, I've read a couple well, pieces that indicate that. Well, uh, James Allen, Professor James Allen Fox says that the contagion oh, yeah. effect is not something that he notices I know. in like the clustering uh, of, of events are, are not really statistically. I get that. I disagree with him sure. on it, but that's okay because that's what researchers yeah. do. But let me tell you something about what you're saying that I just wanted to make one more mm-hmm. point because um, I think what you're saying is so uh, important for, for listeners to remember. A lot of this why, why, why is what we call, like now I'll be, uh, I'll be the prosecutor I used to be, it's motive. And it's really easy to get lost on the motive of why somebody did something. Motive is not something we prove in a court of law. We don't care what your motive is. We care if you did it. 
that's what you get convicted of. Right. You could be completely unintending to do something. There's an al- there certainly is a mens rea, right? There's an aspect of of motive uh, in in certain types of laws like murder. Did you you know first degree murder is you and you anticipated doing that. You went there with the tools. You intended to do that. You intended to do that. And but in general, what we are looking at and often get lost in is this whole pool of of why did this guy do it? Why did he do it? When really what we're looking for is what behaviors did he Mm. have that led him to it? We can identify the behaviors even if we can't get inside. That's a very good point. I think this is a very strong point because you can see those warning signs and then perhaps you can do something about it on the individual basis when it's happening. It's, Mm -hmm. I think it's much harder to, uh, come up with the perfect, uh, you know, unified theory as to why these active shooter incidents appear to be increasing. Um, that's a much harder thing to do. And it's not, it may not even be as important as, you know, somebody as, as informing the public to understand what warning signs to look for. I mean, even the pandemic thing, that, that one sounds very reasonable to me, you know, and that's something that I, I would, uh, uh, strongly agree with makes a lot of sense as far as like, well, the, the stressors are increasing, then you should expect to see, uh, more of these sort of events happening. And, uh, but the crazy thing was that in 2020, we had fewer, right. Uh, but now that's probably because of the lockdown. We didn't though, Look, but we didn't look at the numbers. Mm -hmm. We didn't have fewer. If you look at the FBI numbers, we didn't have fewer in 2020. It was 30, 30, 40, and 61. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, um, so, and I didn't know, I didn't know that myself, right? I mean, I'm writing a book during the pandemic locked here in my dining room because everybody else is all locked down. Right. And I'm writing a book, but of course I'm, you know, calling my counterpart at the FBI and saying, Hey, you know, what's going on. And, uh, yeah, they're saying, I, I can't even explain it. Yeah. That's a good point actually in school shootings. Yeah. You know, yeah, no, it's a good point. We had fewer successful ones. Like you're like, Fewer successful is probably uh, there's a bad word for it, but oh yeah, don't but, use you know, that word. But fewer I know <laughs> fewer attacks where the person was actually able to kill a lot of people, and that was probably because of the lockdowns and fewer crowds around. But yeah, I think you, that's a good point. We, we did see a fifty percent increase from twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty one, but that that means that doesn't mean that twenty that just means that there were thirty in twenty twenty, right? Which is not out of right. line with what it was. Seen yeah, before. if you go backwards, it was sixty one forty thirty thirty. Right. Okay. So, you know, do the math on those years, 21, 20, 19, 18, which would have put us right before the pandemic. Okay. Right. So, but you know what, something else I wanted to tell you that is one of the reasons why I'm hopeful mm-hmm. when, uh, and other people should be hopeful is when we saw the numbers from the FBI for this year, I was actually the guy who took my job at the FBI. He and I were at lunch the day they released those and he, he picked his phone up and he goes, Oh, they just released the numbers. Um, and when I started to dissect those numbers, um, one of the things that I noticed is the uh, casualty count is dramatically lower. Mm. So I attribute that to, so we may have more incidents, but we have a lower casualty count over the last, uh, over the last couple of years. And I attribute that to um, law enforcement's doing a better job of responding and the public is doing a better job of, you know, running and hiding and fighting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're we're not going down. We're we're the guys in the plane crashing in Pennsylvania. We're not going down without a fight. Interesting. And so the casualties are like half of what they were. 
you know, when I started doing this research mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, from a percentage standpoint. That, that is so to me, that means we're, we're making ground. Well, that, yeah. I mean, that that's uh, well, that is a positive note to end on, at least and a very <laughs> negative uh, topic generally. Topic. But uh, uh, but I, so I'm <laughs> really glad that you came on. I think you offered a lot of uh, really interesting insight into this uh, that you're not probably not going to get from anyone else because you've spent a lot of time. Uh, studying this, but where can people find more of your uh, more of your work on this topic? So I think that certainly I, I do have a book out, but you know I'm not about selling books. Nobody makes any money selling books. If you write a book, you know that. Um, I I paid personally to put it up in an ebook so that uh, in a soft cover so that you know that would be available to uh, audiobook. You know I did. You know I paid for that. Um, so it's there if you want the book. If you want, you can also uh, listen to the podcast, which is free, right? You can download podcast anywhere like your fantastic mm-hmm. podcast. And and um, all of it you can access through my website. Uh, it's katherineschweit.com. So if you can figure out how to spell my name, K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E-S-C-H-W-E-I-T.com. I wish my name was Kate Smith. <laughs> um, Me too. But, yeah, katherineschweit.com, W-S-C-H-W-E-I-T. Um, com. Then you can ac- you can access all of it there, and I appreciate you you mentioning yeah. that. I will say that I'm definitely I'm all about let's prevent it, let's prevent it, let's prevent it. The book ten of the fourteen chapters in the book are prevention cha- chapters. Schools, churches, businesses, uh, podcasts. We talk about that all the time. This we have to find a way to beat this. So that's why I stay optimistic. Well, I think uh, those are all fantastic resources and people should check them out. Uh, and I really appreciate you having uh, giving us the opportunity to interview you and have you on. And uh, hopefully we can speak again soon, uh, maybe maybe under better circumstances. Maybe things will continue to uh, hey. uh, trend in a more positive direction. Uh, and That would and be great. I'd love to have that. that conversation. Yes, that would be fantastic. <laughs> That'd be great. Uh, all right. That'd be great. Thanks for thanks for. Sh- Thanks for providing accurate information to the public. That's that is our best source. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having the knowledge to uh, be able to share on this topic. So I, I really appreciate it. And we'll uh, we'll head over to the news segment now. And uh, yeah, we'll have we'll have to have you on again in the future. All right, we've got the news segment here for you guys this week. We have a, a new guest who would introduce you to another part of the Reload family. We have contributing editor. Paul Crookston with us this week to go over some of the the latest news out there. How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing well. Um, Glad to be on here um, and glad to get to talk about this week's set of news. Yeah. So what what do you got for us? What's going on? All right. So the big news this week is that the lawsuits are rolling in. After the Supreme Court's ruling in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, Several blue states got to work passing more gun control legislation and gun rights proponents, unsurprisingly, have gotten to work taking them to court. Yes. Yes. There's been a whole flood of, of lawsuits now. Uh, you know, the Supreme Court blew up the, the gun litigation space. And now you're seeing the fallout from that uh, in the form of these new laws and these new challenges to those new laws. Uh, we've got what? Cases in New York, California, uh, D.C., Hawaii, right? Uh, yeah. Legal action think, all over the place. Yeah. And I think New York is the star is the star of the show here. Um, that's where mm-hmm. the Bruin case was. 
and uh, New York legislators and the governors seem intent on um, doing battle with the court a bit here. Yeah, uh, they're certainly the epicenter, just like they were in the in the brewing case. And now, um, you know, they didn't like the outcome of that case and they seem poised to, uh, well, end right back up at the Supreme Court again, in all likelihood, over these new restrictions that they've passed. Uh, actually, uh, contributing writer Jake Fogelman had a great analysis piece on this new paradigm that we're seeing uh, that you might call shall issue, but uh, may carry because now a lot of these states are removing their good reason clause, although they are instituting other subjective standards uh, as well. Uh, but but in place of the old restrictions, they are now putting in far more restrictions on where you can legally carry. New York uh, especially has been leading that push. Uh, and effectively, they've banned carry in well, almost every piece of private property in uh, in the state, uh, unless they sort of flip things on their head. Usually, uh, public businesses open to the public are uh, presumptively uh, areas where people can carry in the vast, in basically every state, uh, except now for New York, where uh, you know instead of having to put up a sign that says "No guns allowed," it will uh, be presumptively off limits and there'll be, you'll have to post a sign that says guns are allowed. So that's an interesting novel approach that they're taking. Um, and that the, the governor has kind of uh, underscored uh, the, the goal of by saying, you know, the only places that'll be legal to carry a gun in New York are some streets. That's a quote from her. And um, I mean, they've been sued over it now. Uh, there's already a lawsuit uh, dealing with that part of the law, I think it com comes from a very controversial, uh, kind of crazy, frankly, Repu yeah. uh, Republican candidate up there. But he is, he's challenged this. I would I had imagined that there will be more challenges from perhaps more serious uh, objectors. You know, maybe some of the gun control groups will get involved. Um, and uh, they're, they're likely to end up back in the court with that, yeah. with what they're doing on it that front. It certainly seems like a direct challenge to the logic of Clarence Thomas's opinion, because mm. his whole point basically boils down to we shouldn't treat the Second Amendment like it's a different category of right. And I mean, it takes five seconds to think about if there were a million caveats about where and when the First Amendment applied to you <laughs> to the point where. People are talking about, can we have a an online map that like has live updates about which places are opening up as a as a possible zone where you can have a gun? And like you said, the some streets quote from Kathy Hochul, it doesn't take a legal expert to say, well, this this clearly is a regime around guns that is completely different from every other right. So it's 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 directly challenging the logic of Thomas's decision in a way that has to be intentional, I would think. It sure seems that way. Uh, you know, I had a whole analysis piece on this uh, uh, last week where, where it talked about, I mean, this is just it's a message to the Supreme Court to come and get us again, I guess. Uh, like, we don't care what you ruled last time. I mean, especially uh, there's another lawsuit from uh, perhaps a more established 
group, the Gunners of America, is suing New York as well on their insistence uh, in protecting the subjectivity of these permitting decisions. Uh, because, sure, they got rid of the good reason clause in name. Uh, you don't have to prove you have a specific need that's specialized uh, in order to obtain a permit, but you they double down on their good moral character clause. So now, instead of uh, the issuing official judging whether or not you have a good reason to carry on their own subjective, subjective uh, you know, merits, uh, they'll judge whether or not you have a good moral character, whether and they have. Uh, instead of a good reason clause, they have a good tweeter clause is, is what I'm calling it, um, <laughs> which is where you have to share, share your social media accounts with uh, the issuing officer and they will determine if you uh, are a good enough tweeter, I guess. Well, I mean, to be more serious, they, they're going to I guess they're going to look for things like threats. It's not clear. They, there's no standard on what they're supposed to look for or what would determine whether or not you qualifies as having good moral character. California's done the same thing out uh, out there. You know, there's also a reference process in there, sort of like job uh, job uh, interview where you have to provide references to people to, to tell the state that you have, are a good person um, in order to exercise this, this right. I mean, which the, again, the Supreme Court, this isn't like a privilege. This is something that they identified as a core right part of the second amendment. So it, it remains difficult to see how subjective standards like uh, good moral character clauses or, you know, this, the social media vetting process that they've instituted that doesn't have an objective measure for what would disqualify you uh, is going to survive a court, this, this sort of court challenge from gun owners of America, which is a little more, which frankly, Compared to the other two cases going on here, there's there's another case by, by a that was self filed by a Second Amendment lawyer um, representing himself against these same good moral character clauses um, in New York. But the GOA suit is probably a little more um, likely to succeed just because of the, they have an actual track record. You know, uh, they're an organized group that has a track record of these sorts of cases and and has legitimate wins over, over time. So. Anyway, um, <clears throat> yeah, New York is uh, right at right back at the center of all this immediately, because frankly they just didn't accept the um, on they they accepted it in the sense that they got rid of their good reason clause, but then they, it's actually right now, and I don't and frankly I don't think this is going to last that long, but right now it's worse for people in New York who want to carry a gun illegally. It's it's harder to do it now than it was before the ruling came down, and something tells me that's not going to sit well with with these uh, Supreme Court justices. Yes, I think I think you're correct. Um, there's uh, also some action out west. Um, California um, has taken uh, some new gun control measures, and Governor Gavin Newsom signed them. One that uh, there's a court filing over is this advertising ban. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, they, they banned uh, or they're targeting advertising that is um, intended to uh, be targeted at children or, is, mm -hmm. or could reasonably be viewed that way. Uh, and, and the governor in his public uh, 
speech about this uh, was pointing to things like the JR-15, which is this uh, uh, scaled-down version of the AR-15. It's not an actual AR-15. It's a, it's a 22 rifle that's made to look like an AR-15. Um, and it uses, you know, provocative branding, probably with the express purpose of getting uh, sort of outrage attention from uh, people like Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, uh, because there's like the skull and crossbones with a pacifier sort of branding for this gun. Now, the gun itself is just literally a semi-automatic 22 rifle with a special integrated child safety lock um, that comes with a one, one round magazine when you buy it. But um, because it looks like an AR-15 and it has this provocative branding or trolley sort of branding is uh, that's the center of this this sort of law. Um but that's been challenged by the Firearms Policy Coalition as, and it's really kind of more a, of a First Amendment challenge. Uh, you know, it's yeah. First Amendment. It's actually not. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's filed specifically based on the First and Fourteenth Amendment. Correct. correct? Sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. The equal uh, sort of due process, and uh, they're you know they're using incorporation to challenge this uh, under the First Amendment because it's a restriction on speech effectively. Um, uh, but there are, there's also another case out of California by another one by, I believe it's FPC, if I'm remembering correctly. They do a lot of California litigation. But um, and I think they I believe this one was filed with the California Rifle and Pistol Association, which is the NRA affiliate there. Uh, yeah. Challenging um, the assault. For the, ban. Yes. Um, and for the record that um, the Second Amendment Foundation, SAF, filed the case on this child advertising Right. Uh, they, thing that we were just talking about. Good catch there. Yes. Uh, you know, so these are some of the these groups that we're talking about here are the most active uh, gun rights groups when it comes to litigation. You know, GOA, FPC, SAF, yep. NRA, you know, NRA usually working through its affiliates. You know, the New York Rifle, yep. New York State Rifle and Pistol Association is an NRA affiliate. Uh, yes. You know, that won that brewing case. So important to note who's who's, you know, doing this sort of work across the country. But. Uh, they're challenging the assault weapons ban. Now they're using um, the the Bruin decision in that case as a reason for why um, why the, the the outcome should be different than previous challenges, right? Yeah, um, and this is an interesting question because uh, I feel like. Um, these cases are going to deal partly with precedent from Bruin, but also partly precedent from Heller to some extent, right? Yeah, How, I mean, Heller, what, Bruin builds on Heller, so it makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. they're using that common common use standard that Heller uh, spoke at length about when it came to banning handguns, you know, the AR-15s and similar uh, firearms, what the industry calls modern sporting rifles, what uh, a lot of gun control activists will call assault weapons, you know, sort of a, these, these terms have kind of uh, mushy definitions to them, uh, especially assault weapons. Very, the, the definition varies from state to state where these bans exist, but AR-15, if you're thinking of AR-15s, you know, the industry claims there's 20 million of those in um, civilian hands at this point. So they're extremely common. They, they're the most popular uh, rifle in in the United States, that that category of rifle, 
uh, or that style of, of rifle, the AR-15. And so, uh, you know, the, the, a lot of the arguments, but this, and this is not a new argument, but a lot of them have relied on this idea that um, Heller articulated about a firearm being in common use for lawful purposes, you know, you just can't be banned outright uh, as a category. And so that's what they're relying on. And Bruin is, Bruin adds this new historical test uh, or a more explicit historical text, a test, which, you know, uh, it'll probably be difficult to find a historical analog to assault weapons bans that dates back to the founding era. Now, you know, obviously it doesn't need to be in, they don't literally have to have an assault weapons ban, uh, you know, an AR-15 ban back in, you know, 1792, because the AR-15 didn't exist back then, but you'd have to find some sort of law that was similar in nature to ban very popular firearm uh, in the way that these these bands do. And I think that's a high bar. Uh, although we did talk to, um, we did talk to two experts for this. Uh, our intern, Eric, uh, Eva wrote this, uh, this story on the assault weapons band piece. And he got um, interesting comments from two different experts. I think it was uh, Professor Blackwell argued basically that the Bruin standard makes upholding these laws much more difficult. But we had uh, Professor Robert Leiter from George Mason University, who's also a constitutional law expert, um, argue that uh, perhaps this doesn't change, or at least this particular argument about common use, the common use standard might not be successful. Um, and his argument was that they, the these laws have been upheld under a couple of different kinds of reasoning, not just this two-step standard that the Supreme Court has, has uh, explicitly cast aside. So, uh, well, I guess there'll be, I guess there's some disagreement there, uh, even among your sort of, uh, you know, pro, pro gun scholars, I would say both of those sort of classify, uh, in the pro gun category, but they have a different take on, on how successful these will be. Yeah. I do think it's a really interesting question. So New York has this assault weapons ban that, um, that FPC is challenging and, it seems to me like FPC's case is quite strong when you point out that uh, these guns, these quote unquote assault weapons, are really rifles that are in common use um, that aren't um, more extreme in some way, you know, rocket launchers, uh, automatic rifles, that sort of thing. Um, and yet, uh, this. Um, to me, I look at the common use standard and I think, yeah, that should that should invalidate New York's law. But um, okay. post Heller, yeah, we should clarify that there's there's two lawsuits against assault weapons ban, one in California yeah, and one New York, in New York, California. Uh, yeah. So just to be clear, so, there's there's uh, there's several of these going on now in the post Heller landscape. Yeah. Um, well, so that's well, the and thing, then there's right? another so one to that me, was GBR in, in Maryland. Uh, so there, Maryland's assault and spam is also now in a post Heller, uh, you know, fight because it was the court literally sent that back down for uh, reevaluation. Uh, so uh, yeah. yeah, but, but and, go on. And I, I do think it's an interesting question. Why weren't all of these invalidated after Heller in 2008? Like we're talking about the the world of post-Bruin litigation, which, you know, the ball has been moved because of the the two-part test mm -hmm. being changed and stuff. 
the ball has moved in a pro-Second Amendment direction. But part of me wonders why the ball wasn't far enough in 2008 to invalidate these kinds of things anyway. Um, and Well, I, I think the argument there is uh, from gun rights advocates is, is what you saw in Bruin, right? Which is that these lower courts, a lot of them, especially in the more um, blue-leaning uh, districts, areas, uh, you know, uh, circuits, they uh, they use the two-step standard, uh, the two-step review to just uphold all, basically all, all the gun, uh, um, sorry, all of the gun control legislation that made it to their, uh, you know, to the final level of appeal. And so uh, now that the court has said, well, that, that standard doesn't work, I think it opens up renewed scrutiny of these, these bans that, you know, is going to be much harder for the state to justify under the Bruin, uh, the Bruin tests basically. Uh, and so, yeah, but, but as lighter pointed out, it's not, it's not impossible that they, they could with, withstand this scrutiny, I suppose. Uh, we'll have to see that's, I guess that's part of the, how, how these lower courts respond and then how the S Supreme court responds to them is really going to tell you everything. Because that was the problem with Heller, at least that was the, the long-term critique of it, was, well, sure, they, they made this landmark decision, but then when the lower courts uh, what, did what uh, gun, gun rights advocates argued was ignoring that decision, basically, the, the Supreme Court didn't take up any of these cases outside of um, the stun gun one in 2016. And so they just kind of let it fester for a decade, uh, well, 12 years, really. Um, uh, since McDonald, the, uh, the 2010 case, but, uh, and that, that's why you didn't see these assault and spans getting struck down in that time. So it, that could happen again, you know, just because the court issues a ruling and even gives out explicit, um, instructions on how to decide second amendment cases moving forward. It doesn't mean that they're, that lower courts will follow it to the, the way that Justice Thomas or uh, gun rights advocates want them to. And so, uh, you know, plus this new standard that relies on historical tradition is is a fairly subject. You know, there's a lot of subjectivity in there. You could probably look at Bruin um, and if there had been six liberals instead of six uh, conservatives on the court, even under the exact same standard, you might have come to a different conclusion about whether or not New York's May issue law was uh, had historical analogs that that would justify its existence, right? So um, you're going to see that fight continue, I think, and it's it's going to determine a lot of what happens. Uh, and speaking of Heller, by the way, we had another oh, story. Yes, yes, we, mm -hmm. we talked to Heller. <laughs> Heller is not just uh, you know the name. <laughs> Heller of is a, a person. <laughs> yeah, it's not just the name of a, a court case. He's a, he's an actual person who's still around. Yep. Uh, and still extremely active, as you might imagine, in uh, gun litigation. And and so uh, I spoke to him about uh, the Bruin ruling, which is basically it's a descendant of his case. You know that that Heller decision is is a landmark decision for a reason. It was the first time the Supreme Court recognized uh, an individual right to keep and bear arms was protected by the Second Amendment. And the Bruin decision is a direct descendant of that. And so he was, uh, you know, he, he said that that was 
you know, a good way of characterizing it and, and that he um, uh, is not done <laughs> fighting DC over its gun laws. Uh, you know, this, this is a guy who was, uh, he's motivated by, uh, there were several shootings at his, at his home on Capitol Hill in, in the seventies. And so now he, uh, that, that's sort of what drove him to become more interested in, in firearms. And then he challenged DC's total ban on handgun ownership um, in, you know, 2008's case when he was a police, he was actually a police officer at the time, or police, uh, a special officer. He worked at the Supreme Court's uh, annex, actually, when he filed that case. And, and, and he's filed four more since then. Uh, some some winning, some losing. Actually, the, the this uh, this Bruin standard that taught, that relies on history, um, and you know, and tradition that actually came out of a uh, a Kavanaugh dissent in a Heller's second case that was challenging DC's assault weapons ban. Uh, now Heller lost that case, but but he's since won other cases or at least forced. Uh, he actually just recently forced DC to uh, rework its. You know, ghost gun ban uh, successfully through, you know, challenging it legislatively. He also um, was able to change their registration process and the rules for that uh, in the wake of the first Heller case. So, uh, you know, he's been very active and, and fairly successful for somebody who's, you know, uh, filing federal court cases. Uh, and now he's back again with another case dealing with uh, there's a there's a limit on how many rounds of ammunition you can carry on you if you are licensed to carry a gun in dc you can only have basically two magazines for your firearm so uh, and then there's a cap of 20 rounds total so if your gun uh the magazine only holds eight rounds well you can only carry 16 rounds but if my gun has a magazine that holds 10 rounds i can carry 20 rounds um but he's challenging this whole structure uh, as as unconstitutional uh, in the wake of Bruin, so um, uh, you know that that'll be interesting to see how that plays out and what DC does. A lot of times, DC's tactic has been after after they lost in Heller and created you know a landmark pro gun decision that uh, a lot of gun control activists really dislike. Obviously, um, they've been less willing to fight these things all the way to the Supreme Court. That's why DC has. A shall issue level. That's why this, that's why the landmark case here was uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin instead of Wren v. DC, because Wren uh, challenged DC's gun carry laws um, and won, uh, but the DC decided not to appeal and instead just adopted a, a shall issue law that now is being used as something of a model for the rest of the the may issue states now but so it took a couple years longer to get to the same result but dc didn't want to be the one on the hook again and so it'll be interesting to see how they respond to heller's new suit there's also a suit uh about carrying on uh metro on public transit here in dc yes uh, there's a separate suit uh, filed by the same lawyer george lyon we talked to him in this story as well um you guys should check it out on the reload but uh you know that that's uh, also being challenged in New York. New York has passed a similar restriction on public transit. Uh, you can't carry guns on public transit. Uh, obviously, this is a huge problem for anyone who doesn't own a, uh, a car 
and wants to carry a gun in public. Like me. Uh, and like a lot of low-income people as well, right? Well, I was about to say, this is something that seems to basically a lot of minorities target too. poor people, essentially. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it disproportionately affects uh, minorities as well in these cities, um, like a lot of these gun restrictions do. But but yeah, so uh, yep. you know, the, there's a whole flood out there. We've got a bunch of pieces on the reload. Um, but uh, we'll let you guys go. I know this this podcast is, I think we've run a little bit longer than normal. So uh, uh, we will be back next week. Thank you, Paul, for joining us. I think we'll have Jake back next week, but it's nice to introduce another another face and voice uh, to to the audience. Let people know, you know, who's, who's running this whole thing. It's not just me, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right, well, we'll be back next week. Thank you, guys. Bye.